I got to know Kathy through her writing. Uh, she has written a lot, uh, a, a co-author of a book called More Than Serving Tea, which I'd recommend to you, and then prolific online in lots of different places. Um, and the, the, the moment that I, I knew I wanted Kathy to come and preach in our church was, uh, was last year, kind of at the height of uh, sort of the Black Lives Matters uh, protests. And, and I was l- kind of reading uh, some of the stuff she was writing kind of at the height of that. Uh, I found it so helpful, so insightful, uh, and, and, and so in line with kind of the heartbeat of our church. I thought, Here, you know, this is someone we really do uh, need, need to hear from. And, uh, and so we got to... Uh, have lunch together, get to know each other a little bit, and she thankfully agreed. Are you still on sabbatical right now? Okay, so she's off of sabbatical uh, and back to the real world, but uh, we're, we're really, really grateful uh, to have her with us uh, this morning. So I'm going to pray for her and then invite her up, and, um, and then we just encourage you after the service, if you'd like to greet her, thank her, please, uh, please do that. So let's, let's pray for her together. God, we thank you for the word that your Holy Spirit has given uh, Kathy for us. We thank you that you've been speaking to her um, in, in many different ways, uh, but we, we do. We, we honor you, Lord, for what you have said to her. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would continue to speak to her uh, even as she preaches and opens your word uh, for us this morning. Help us to hear well, to listen well, uh, to meditate well, to consider uh, the implications for every single one of us this morning. Uh, the implications uh, of what we're hearing for how we walk out of this place and, and live our lives. So, uh, um, Lord, we pray that you would um, remind her of your presence even as uh, she stands before us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Could you welcome Kathy with me, please? All right, I'm good. Good morning. So thank you, Pastor Michelle, for that um, Wonderful announcement about vision boards, and I would concur. They can sound really weird, um, <laughs> and I've seen some that are a little weird. Um, but uh, my favorite vision board actually belongs to my daughter. It's this huge bulletin board in her room that she, over the process of several weeks before her senior year, put together, and um, it still hangs in her room when she's gone away at college. And uh, when I take a look at it, I can see how she's really uh, been in tune with the way God is working in her and seeing how she can see what God wants for her life. And as a parent um, of now older children, they used to be really little, uh, there is nothing uh, more incredible to see a child kind of grow into the person that you imagine God would want them to become. Um, And so women... Go, do the vision board, enjoy the fellowship, get over the like weirdness of what it sounds like you're going to do, and um, uh, use the creativity that God instills in you and all of us to put in a very tangible, visual way to remind you of who you are, who God wants you to be. Amen? Amen. So... Um, little promo for that. I heard that and I was like, yes, you should do that. You should do that. Absolutely. So I am going to speak out of the book of Esther, which uh, I do a lot. Um, And over the years, this book has challenged me and bothered me and continues to irritate me in many levels uh, because it's one book in 
Bible that doesn't mention God at all. And yet there it is in Scripture, very important. It's a book named after a woman. That doesn't happen very often. Um, And it's named after someone we call a queen, but really isn't a queen if you look into her story. And so for those reasons, it's uncomfortable. It's not always a fun passage or book to preach out of, but I think it is very relevant for where we are currently in our country. And for me, as a Korean-American woman, I relate on many levels, um, historically, generationally, and even in the present, to what the book of Esther speaks. So um, I'm going to read a passage out of this book, um, and so if you would just listen and receive this. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. So, Queen Esther. When I think of queens, I actually don't think of a queen. I think of a princess. I think of uh, Princess Kate of England. Um, So I grew up in the era of Princess Diana, Princess Di. And I remember getting up for her wedding And I actually remember staying up for her funeral. She visited my alma mater, and I wasn't there to see that, but I just remember all of the hoopla around that. And to see Princess Kate kind of carry uh, her mother-in-law's, right? I don't, I mean, I don't know how you describe that relationship, but um, to carry on uh, the weight of that role, and of Princess Di's history. Um, But Queen Esther is not like Princess Kate. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I grew up hearing Queen Esther's story, I actually thought of a queen. I thought of crown, I thought of, like, royal robes, and, you know, this, and a scepter, and royalty. I thought of royalty and the idea of being in the king's palace Um, But when you read about Esther's story, you realize that it's actually not that. It's just a title that's given to her. She is a teenager, and because the king has a little bit of a fit and gets rid of his queen, he decides that he is going to call all of the beautiful virgins in all of his land, in all of Persia, to parade for him. He is putting together a harem. He's looking for a sex slave. 
That's what it is. She's a teenager. She doesn't join this because it's some sort of scholarship opportunity or some advancement opportunity. She has to do this. There's no way around it. And so for a long time, I wrestled, why in the world would her uncle send her into this, realizing he actually had no choice? This was the king's edict. And so she is sold into this situation, and she's a teenager um, it is sex, sexual exploitation at best, uh, sex slavery at worst. And so the idea that she becomes queen is less uh, an exciting advancement opportunity and more of slightly horrifying and of survival. And so when I think of Esther, um, I think of uh, the history of my parents and the experience that they've had. So for you to understand, when I say I am Korean-American, I think when we think politically, we may think Asian-American. Right? So we've become kind of this mass of all of Asia. We're all kind of you know, dark hair, we eat rice, we use chopsticks, I don't, you know, all of those types, all of Asian-American. And yet I never identified myself as Asian-American until I was probably in college um, and really had not related to that term. I was Korean-American. And I came to the U.S. in 1971 in the spring with my parents. I was eight months old. My parents were leaving a country that was left in martial law, still recovering from a war that left its tiny peninsula split into two. My husband's family uh, was divided because of the way the country was split up. My father-in-law never saw his family ever again after the war. And so when my parents and I left Korea, it was not the place that some of us imagine as this kind of up-and-coming mecca of plastic surgery, fashion, and cosmetics. Um, It was in ruins, a country that was still picking itself up from war. And so when my parents came, they genuinely believed that they were coming to America for survival, that there were no opportunities in their country. And as a family raising one daughter and then soon to have a second daughter, a country rooted in misogyny, patriarchy, it would be better (laughs) to come to America. (laughs) So when I look at Esther's story, I do not see myself as a woman sold into sex slavery. I do not see myself as one who had to follow the king's edict, but I find myself as Esther who passed. And for people of color, we know what that phrase means, to pass. Asian Americans have often been called honorary white. (laughs) We are the model minority. We behave We put our nose to the grindstone. I don't even know what that means. Right. Um, We work hard. We study hard. We become doctors and lawyers and engineers. We are successful. We don't cause trouble. We don't speak up. We are model minorities. We pass. And so I relate to Esther, who was once known as Hadassah, because I was once known as Kang Kyung Ah. I relate to Esther because she used to follow Jewish dietary laws and have cultural rhythms 
and traditions that have all been but lost to me. I gave up my mother tongue the minute I went to kindergarten and was put in ESL. Right. I learned English by watching Sesame Street. I continued to defend my Americanness. I gave up my green card to become a U.S. citizen. I changed the spelling of my last name. I changed the order of my name so that my individual me comes before my family. I know what it means to pass. My story is one of passing just like Esther's. And when I think of her being um, considered in a place of privilege, I resonate with that dissonance. Because when I'm told I'm a model minority, it's kind of a backhanded compliment. I'm being told that I fit in, that I have tried desperately to be white, that I've forgotten who I am, who God's created me to be, the history of my people, and the story. That story of passing has continued even into my adulthood. My parents were over for dinner last night. Um, and, my, and partly because my daughter was still in town, um, home on spring break, and she's the first... Uh, grandchild on our side of the family, and uh, my parents wanted to see her off. It's very, I don't know, traditional, very, you know, really, if we had done it the right way, we would have gone to my parents' house, so I felt kind of bad. But I realized that even in that uh, brief three hours with my parents, there was this sense of pushing and pulling, of speaking Korean to my parents when they wanted to talk about my daughter without her knowing that they were talking about her and making comments about people that they knew and they would speak in Korean and feeling like, do I translate this for my daughter and my husband, who neither of them speak a lick of Korean, and this sense of, uh, who am I in this family? My parents slipped my daughter a little bit of uh, what we call yongtun, spending money, like off to the side, but just off to the side, but not off to the side enough so that I could see what they were doing, and then my mom whispered as she was leaving, you know, and I was like, okay, mom, yeah, I know you gave her money. Shh, I saw. Um, And part of that is to instill in my daughter the values and the traditions of caring for family, the expectation that one day perhaps the granddaughter would care for the grandmother, Right? Or that the daughter would care for the mother, but still feeling torn, like, don't guilt her. <laughs> don't put obligation on her. She's her own woman. She's independent, but she's part of the family. She's American and she's Korean. And ultimately, why do my ice cubes still smell funny? That is the burden of one who continues to wrestle with wanting to pass. That my home is a little bit of American and still Korean. That when the kids' friends come in, some of them wear their shoes into the basement. (laughs) But my family will always take their shoes off. And so for 
Esther, she passed into the king's palace, and it came at a cost. And so for those of you who are not Asian American, please understand that for us, even though we are called a model minority and considered honorary white, that it has come at a cost, that we've lost connection to our parents and our grandparents and our stories, that we don't have the language to connect us in the ways that some of us can, that traditions get lost for us when we are no longer known as Hadassah or Kyonga, but that we become Esther and Kathy. And that is the idea of passing. And so in Esther, we must realize that even as Christians, we can try to pass. How many of us spend a great deal of time with our non-believing friends and have nothing different in the way we interact with them or the world around us? how we interact in social media, in our workspace, in our communities, with our friends, our neighbors, with the parents of our kids' friends. How do our interactions show the ways in which we pass? So I grew up in the western suburbs, spent my first... um, two-ish years in elementary school in the north side of Chicago. Go Cubs. I don't know. We didn't, I didn't grow up with baseball. Um, I didn't know white people until I left Chicago. Because <laughs> the white friend I had was actually, she was Greek. Evangelia. She was Greek. Um, and so I got to the burbs and realized, like, wow. Everyone's really pale. Everyone, except my family. We were the first ones in the school district to be non-white. And with that comes privilege. And that's a little trickier, especially in our current situation here in America. (laughs) There is a lot of horrific, just broken stuff. A different word comes to mind, but I won't use that. Um, Pastor David mentioned uh, Walter Scott and that horrible video, um, not just of a man being murdered, but then of what looks like evidence being planted, of a man dying and bleeding and being handcuffed and not a call to 911. It's just horrifying. Um, And then just recently, I think in the last 48 hours, Eric Harris, another black man, being told that his breath didn't matter, that his uh, dying didn't matter. I uh, I don't have to walk in that. I have the privilege of relative physical security. Now, it's different. I am a woman. And so for you men, you must know that as a woman of color, the danger that we walk in is very different. Um, It isn't one of police brutality necessarily. If I were of a darker shade, I recognize that that would be a reality. But as a woman, 
It puts us in vulnerable spaces in very different ways. Being the mother of a daughter who is now out in New York terrifies me. And I tell her, you know, please text me when you get on the subway and when you get off. And yes, I'm being a helicopter mom, but I am your mother. And I will track you on GPS if I need to. Right? There is a privilege. It isn't always a matter of being pretty like it was for Esther, um, but it can look like a free pass. We don't have to consider it. When you're walking in privilege, you're not always aware of it. And that goes for all of us at some level or another. Esther's privilege was limited. She has often been painted as winning this kind of beauty pageant. Um, Privilege gave her access, but it limited her access to her culture and to her people. Right? She's stuck in the palace. Privilege has also meant um, opportunities for many of us. Uh, I have many colleagues um, in InterVarsity. We love to be on social media. Um, and one of the things that I wrestle with as an Asian American, as I um, try to be a brother, or well, actually, I can't be a brother, um, be a sister, or uh, um, the term is often used, an ally to my black brothers and sisters, is to um, hold that balance of both privilege as well as being able to hold power and also being able to speak out into the situations in our own communities. That there are many of us who don't know our stories. We've given up our privilege of education, of access to information, of just being good students of history and of the world, um, and learning a little bit of Asian American history, or even Asian history, to understand that some of the privileges have also come at a cost. There's a reason why my family was allowed the privilege to come in the 1970s. The numbers of Asian Americans who were allowed into the country had finally been lifted and changed. Right? We're not welcome unless we carry something that is of worth to this country. So the education that my parents had, that was suddenly of value to this country. And that's why we were let in. Those are the understand, that's what we need to understand behind privilege. That it isn't always just a free pass. There are strings attached for those of us who um, have come to this country in different ways. It is a privilege, but it has also come at great cost. But with that, both the ability to pass and with privilege comes great power. Now, I don't often think of myself as someone who has a lot of power. I've really had to learn about that and realize I have uh, power. <laughs> I've learned that um, I know a lot of people. I'm very well-networked. People I've never met face-to-face, -face, but by social media and writing and tweeting and all those things that people do on their phones. I've amassed this huge network of people, friends that are not friends in real life. 
I've also realized that the privilege that I've been afforded in an education, a college degree, the ability to refine my communication skills and writing is powerful. People may not be afraid of me, but when I write and I get people to pass on that writing, I realize that that's power. We see that in Esther In chapter 3, verse 12, they wrote out the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. They were written in the name of the king Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. There is power in words. And what's interesting in the book of Esther is that the words of destruction are written in the heart languages of people, by someone who is in power. And when I think of that as a Korean-American college-educated woman, I have to be very concerned, very aware, very humble, that my words would not be used for destruction, How many words have we all been called in our lifetime? Words used against us, language used against us, heart language used against us to bring destruction. That is what the enemy does. But in the power of words, we see in Scripture the way God uses words to bring healing and justice and love. That is is also what we see. Mordecai is also an elder, and in my culture, there's a lot of hierarchy. (laughs) There's age and education and which family line, the father's side or the mother's side. Mordecai is the elder. He actually has more power over Esther. But he calls Esther out and realizes that at some point, His power has shifted. And I love seeing a variety of generations worshiping together. That is something that I grew up in the immigrant church, that I have often um, grieved uh, and am saddened to see, as we've seen other churches grow and be planted, that this sense of elders and history and power being shared and exchanged, um, being lost. And we see that happening in the book of Esther, where Mordecai, who is the elder, he is the kind of adopted um, adoptive father of Esther, um, protecting her, making sure that she knows how to pass, how to get into that place of privilege, and then realizing that he does not have the power that he thought he did, and how to interact with that. So I wrestle with that when I sit in that tension of being with my parents and being with my daughter and sons, being here with all of you, that what does it mean to not be white? What does it mean to not be brown or black? To be in this strange place where we do have privilege and access 
It calls us sometimes to pass, to deny who we are, or to take up someone else's burden, or to listen to someone else's burden. What does that mean? And again, I sit and I look at Mordecai, and I look at Esther, and I go, that is an incredible dance of trying to figure out when, what, how. The other thing with power that is tricky is that it can be used in your name, and you might not know it. So when Haman sends those edicts out, he uses King Xerxes' name and his seal. But you will find later on in the book of Esther, when Esther confronts the king, he's like, I had no idea. I had no idea that I had called for the genocide of the Jews. Even though it's in my name and my seal is on it, I had no idea. And that is what happens when we are not aware of the power that we have and the ability to share that, the people that we bring into our circles of power. I have found um, a lot of power in social media. Um, That's how Pastor David and I have interacted. That's how a lot of folks um, I have interacted with. They have shared power. But the danger is you have to align yourself with people who are godly, who love Jesus, who are seeking out God's justice and not just cultural, political, societal justice. It's very dangerous out there in Twitter land. It's very dangerous to be a blogger or a social activist. Things that I have, labels that have been put upon me that I've never claimed as my own. But that's what happens when you recognize the different kinds of power within your hands. I don't want any of us to be like King Xerxes. And as the church, we need to be very careful that our power in community and in language, um, influence is not used and abused the way it was in the book of Esther. It frightens me to think, I mean, how, how in the world does that happen? You called for the genocide of a people and you didn't know? Think about the systems that we have allowed to continue in our country. And think about the systems of oppression that we have allowed to happen in our churches. In God's name, with your church name, with your title as worship leader, pastor, elder, We need to understand there is great power. It isn't until chapter 4 we actually hear Esther speak. A book titled Esther. And it takes four chapters before we hear a peep out of her. And what she says is, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
when she finally speaks, it's a breath of fresh air for me. Four chapters, that's a long time in a short book. And for me, as a Korean-American woman, I will tell you, I don't think I found my voice until my 30s. And most times when I speak, it's not even within the context of my own people. I can't tell you the last time a Korean-American church invited me to preach. Or even an Asian-American church invited me to preach. There's not a lot of detailed strategy in her power. She asks people to pray, to fast, and then she takes action. When she finally decides to take action, this is when I most resonate with Esther. She invites the king and Haman to two dinner parties. And the reason why I relate to that as a Korean-American woman is because that is my role. That is what I was taught. I know how to cut fruit beautifully. I have failed as a mother. My daughter tried to cut a mango the other day, and I was appalled. (laughs) How could you not know? The gift of hospitality is passed down. It is expected. It's what you do. And even in that, even in that, there is great power. And so for us women, as you go vision boarding, (laughs) remember that our world tells us what our power is limited to, right? We cause men to stumble. We are the sidekick. We are the suitable helpmate. You are nothing, really, until you are married, and then you are sort of nothing until you bear children. And then if you're Asian or Korean, you really need to bear a son. Right? That's really, I mean, I bore two sons, so thank goodness for me. My sister bore three sons, thank goodness for her. My parents have seven grandchildren out of two daughters, and out of those seven grandchildren, Five grandsons. Oh, wow. Bogimanta, you know, much luck, so much blessing. We have to remember that power comes in unexpected ways. This world will tell us that power comes in very specific ways, right? It is political, it is in money, right? It is in the amount of people in the arms that you have, right? That is the kind of power that this world and our culture will tell us. And that is also what the enemy tells us. Right now, the enemy is telling us that the power is only in the police state, right? That power is in guns and in violence. And that is the lie that this world tells us. We have to know as God's people, our power comes from God, Our our power comes from the conviction to speak out, no matter what our station. Esther is a sex slave. She might not even be recognized by the king. Can you imagine that? That's supposed to be like a husband and wife thing. No. 
Her power comes in just being recognized. And so for me, I can tell myself, I have no power, I have no power, I have no power. And sometimes I need to say, oh, Kathy, you need to shut up. You need to go back to scripture. You need to read. You need to look at what God does. He uses a teenage sex slave through dinner parties to end the genocide of her people. If God can do that, what can he do in us? None of us are sex slaves. None of us lack the recognition of ones who are supposed to love us and protect us. You are known in this community. You are known in your families. You are known in your communities. How are we blind to the ways our people, our communities, need us to speak out into the broken systems? And not just the broken systems, but the broken spirits. Because these broken systems did not come out of nowhere. They were, they were created by broken people. Genocide was thought up by Haman, who was eaten up by jealousy and little man syndrome. Right? One person didn't bow down to him. And then he orders the genocide of entire people. Broken systems do not come out of nowhere. They come out of broken spirits. So how are we too quick to ignore the broken spirits and want to tackle the broken systems. How must we relate to the people in our communities, in our workspaces, in our churches? How are we too quick to pass into mainstream culture and not want to speak out about disobedience to God? It's really easy for me to tweet about all of the injustice in the world. It's a lot harder for me to tweet about how this world is in disobedience to God. How will I invite people as I sit in this middle space, in liminality? How will I engage in the ability to pass Look at that as a way of privilege and power. How can I use that as an opportunity to invite people to Jesus and not into politics, which are important? They are part of the world we live in, but that is not the answer. How have we, how have you, how have I taken too much comfort sitting in the palace, like Esther did. It's obviously broken. She's a slave. She's kind of stuck. But it's not so bad. How many times have we settled for being in that place of passing and privilege and said, well, that's, you know, That community's problem. Those people's problem. Not me. I, what can I do? I've said this a lot. Why am I here? I am essentially a North Suburban soccer mom. 
even though none of my kids play soccer. <laughs> Why, God, are you bothering me <laughs> with all that is going on in the world? Why can I not tear my eyes away from the news and tell my sons and daughter, grieve, watch, listen? You can't ignore this. Yes, it is violent. Yes, it is brutal. But we cannot be comfortable in our little palace, in our little place in the suburbs, in our little home, in our little kitchen, just because we are not them. And so from the book of Esther, I glean and am reminded that God puts the story of a teenage sex slave into scripture without a mention of his name to remind us of his love for his people, his faithfulness, his creativity, and his call. It is to all of us, regardless of where you live, what your education is, what you are doing, what our skin tone is, The dangers that we live in are different. Yes, I fully acknowledge that. But we as believers need to be careful that we have been afforded so many opportunities here in this country to practice our faith freely and openly and publicly that it has almost become mainstream. And how will we make sure that our status as a majority religion is not taken advantage of, that our power as Christians is not used for the destruction of a people. That's what I'm most concerned of, and that is what I pray about. It isn't so much a matter of being any people group's ally. God calls us as a people to justice to reconciliation, that we would use his name, his kingdom, for his glory, and not to use that power for the destruction, the enslavement, the belittlement of another people group. And so how will you, New Community Bronzeville, be a church, a city within a city, that knows its place, that can name the ways in which you, as a city within a city, can do what Esther has done and is doing what Esther is doing. How have you passed? Where is your power? And where is your privilege? And on those things, as we look into another week, And I pray there will be no more deaths, no more hashtags, no more videos, no more sound bites. A week, just one week, Lord, of peace. That in that time, that we as a church would consider and pray on those things. Lord, how are you calling us to wield our power and our privilege for you. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. 
You are powerful. You are loving. And you know every bit of sorrow and grief and anger and lament and joy that we experience within the week. You know how some of us are hurting deeply. That the mention of yet another black man's death is a death for us. I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would understand that even as we walk in that pain, you have given us power and privilege. And it does not come from this world. It does not come from the powers of this culture, but come from you. And so, Lord, for this church and for this community, would they wrestle with the places of power and privilege and royal position that they have been called to and given for such a time as this. Lord, that they would understand the beauty and the gift and the honor that comes with that. Lord, would these people be a people who speak not destruction in the heart language of this city, but they would speak of salvation, of healing, of redemption, of reconciliation in God's language. In Jesus' name, amen. And I, I could be wrong, but my sense would be that maybe there's a handful of you that are like, I got to talk to her after this. So, um, is that okay? So, uh, grab her afterwards and put her brain a little bit, stay in touch with her. Um, this is for you, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. It's, this is really my excuse to give away my favorite poet, but uh, also kind of our neighborhood's poet as well. So, uh, Bronzeville was Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn Brooks' home, and so we like to give our guest uh, speakers uh, and again, please, after the service, find her, thank her for her ministry, um, for driving all the way from what sounds like a very tiny home that you live in, uh, with a very tiny kitchen, um, and, and being with us uh, today. Uh, I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward to receive the offering and uh, pray for that. Worship together a little bit more. God, thank you uh, for the word that you gave us today, and um, and my 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 way of echoing uh, what what Kathy has said and, and prayed for us is that uh, we wouldn't be distracted from any uh, thing that we've heard today that was for us. Uh, any word about our our our, our history any word about our family, any word about our personal struggle, any word about our identity, any word about uh, the suffering um, in, in our lives and the lives of those around us. God, any, anything that, that you said to us through her today, uh, please, Holy Spirit of the living God, don't allow us to be distracted from that. And even if it was an uncomfortable word for some of us, 
give us the courage to sit with the discomfort, knowing that you are there and that you are speaking to us uh, in that as well. Um, I do pray that you would form us into uh, the sort of people who can do this dance uh, that we heard described for us today and to do it well for the flourishing of our city. God, receive now these tithes and offerings as a sign and evidence of what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.